today on Ag News Daily. The main problem is in Germany that the politics uh, from the last 10, 20, 30 years developed in a very uncomfortable way because we get more and more restrictions. February 22nd, 2024. Welcome to the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner and Delaney here hanging out. And Delaney, I think it's probably about time we let our listeners know what we've got cooking coming down the road. Yeah, we have some exciting things cooking coming up within the next few weeks we'll launch here. I don't want to give too much away yet, Tanner, though. I I, I want to kind of drag this thing out, give a little bit of a slow burn if we can. Yeah, I like that. We get to be together at Commodity Classic next week, so that should provide a lot of fun. But uh, stay tuned and uh, stay in touch with the Ag News Daily Podcast because there's some exciting things coming in the second half of March. That's right. Some big things coming as well. I love that. We also don't have a lot of big weather news, though, to kick off the beginning of this. We still have that dry weather in much of the southern Midwest. Of course, Oklahoma is in the crossfires of potential strong winds that relative low humidity that could potentially cause wildfires to expand really quickly. It's also expected to control continue into the weekend. Most of Texas, eastern Oklahoma, Arkansas will continue to see these 30 plus mile per hour winds and relative humidity that will raise those concerns about fire. Of course, here in the Midwest, we do have some breezes ourselves that are going to potentially pull in some colder air. But in the long range, Delaney, it looks like we might have some favorable conditions for some early spring tillage or early spring nitrogen applications, if that's what fits our listeners' plans for the year. That's right. And some folks are itching to get in the field already. Tanner, I know that some growers are in line or on board with the early plant season, even maybe before insurance season is covered. And we're going to see probably some early season soybeans going in the ground, maybe as soon as, you know, the next couple, two, three weeks here. I know the extreme ag guys were in an article this week on successful farming's website, and they are certainly itching to get in the field, Tanner. But for those growers that have hard red winter wheat, they may not be in such a great position as we've seen little to no rainfall in the past week or so in much of Oklahoma and Texas panhandles where winter wheat is grown. And as well as Kansas, there's been some spotty precipitation in Southwest Kansas. Russian or uh, winter wheat condition is certainly a question mark right now as we head into the spring season. We're also seeing a question mark when it comes to grain we're going to see produced out of Russia, Ukraine. Russian grain is still keeping a lid on things here. And USDA said earlier this month, it's expecting Russia to output just 91 million metric tons of wheat down from 92 million metric tons last year. But as we look at the continued conflict going on between Russia and Ukraine, Saturday will mark the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine with no appearance to be closer to resolving the conflict. So it's hard to believe, Tanner, we have been in this now for the last two years. Not we personally, but the world has been in this conflict, I should say. Yeah, I had uh, picked up on that anniversary date coming up because you and I and the rest of the Farm for Profit crew did a kind of an emergency episode mm-hmm. back when it started, talking about how that would affect our listeners in agriculture. 
it was certainly not an anniversary that any of us were hoping to celebrate. We talked a little bit about World Ag Expo because I was out there, but at the same time, the National Farm Machinery Show was happening in Louisville, Kentucky. There were five trends that came out of that, according to the Ag Web editors that I wanted to share with you. It's going to be the year of the combine, 2024. Of course, Case IH announced their AF11 combine. They will continue to uh, push that forward to their customers. Orders can be taking place in the second half of 2024. Of course, Fent and Kloss and John Deere will all be following behind. They plan to have releases themselves, lower horsepower and higher capacity than their previous models, but still less capacity than that of the AF-11. John Deere could be launching something new in Commodity Classic. Smaller horsepower tractors were also a focus of that show. Mahindra was one of the many manufacturers, including Coyote and Bobcat, that featured new low horsepower models that provide extra torque and low fuel consumption. We also learned during that show that supply chain woes are not nearly as bad as they have been historically. A lot of equipment manufacturers from that show confirmed that their global materials supply chain is back to being in a healthy spot for 2024. They will continue to push forward to make sure that any risks going forward would have uh, no issues as well. Precision tech upgrades was a big focus, and I'm sure we're going to get a lot of content down at Commodity Classic about that as well. Everything from many manufacturers focusing on John Deere as well as Ag Leader, and even Bilberry that has uh, Trimble highlights for their updated programs. And then again, where things are headed for the future, we'll continue to keep an eye on the future of tillage technology. So a lot of key things, Delaney, that came out of the National Farm Machinery Show. And I'm sure, like you said, we'll see a lot of those down at Commodity Classic as well. Can't believe it's already here, Tanner. I know. It uh, is going to be a fantastic week. I'm excited to get there. I am as well. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of folks asking questions about the future of ethanol and sustainable, sustainable aviation fuel as well. I expect that to be a top topic of discussion, Tanner, especially after we saw this week, Secretary Vilsack made some remarks that he does anticipate ethanol receiving tax credits specifically related to SAF. He said that ethanol will be included in the Biden administration's uh, forthcoming information that's going to be spelling out the eligibility for lucrative tax credits for sustainable aviation fuel, as well as incentives that will reflect the impact of climate smart farming practices. He said they're working very hard to make that happen, and he is confident that that will happen. Uh, as you dig into the meat of the issue, Tanner, we have the GREET model, which is used to calculate the life cycle of carbon emissions that was released last December. The ethanol industry said they're uneasy about the GREET model and some of the proposed changes that will be coming out here in March, because nobody knows for sure what those changes are that are going to be made to the GREET model, and that will directly impact ethanol's ability to contribute to the SAF market. According to the Renewable Fuels Association's Chief Executive Officer, Jeff Cooper, he said, nobody knows for sure what changes are coming and how those changes will affect the carbon intensity values of SAF made with corn ethanol. 
This industry is posed to be a huge one here as some estimates are suggesting airlines would buy up to 36 billion gallons a year of ethanol for SAF production, which is more than twice as much as the current biofuel mandate for cars and pickup trucks. So this certainly would be a huge demand driver for U.S. corn and ethanol. And those in the renewable fuels industry want to make sure that we have a seat at the table, Tanner. I was at the Lincoln Way Energy um, facility last week in Nevada, Iowa, and this was a top discussion for them as well. As we know right now, the way that the model is lined up, the Greek model, U.S. corn farmers and U.S. ethanol really aren't eligible to send their corn and ethanol to sustainable aviation fuel facilities. And so we know the one that opened up in Georgia or is opening up in Georgia is somehow pulling in imports from Brazil. Uh, so a lot of speculation as to what's going on there, but not a lot of clarity about why that's possible and really why U.S. corn production is not feasible right now to use in SAF. But folks are hoping that this new GREET model revision will allow that to move forward for the corn industry. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the observations and how things change there as well. We've talked a lot about projected ending stocks and actual ending stocks for corn and soybeans. We haven't talked about almonds, Delaney. However, for this year, we could see the almond industry downturn start to turn around. Could we hit a bottom? The ending stocks for unsold U.S. almonds at the end of this marketing year could fall below 500 million pounds for the first time in several seasons. The head of Rabo Research, Food and Agribusiness for North America, stated that there is a much improved balance of carryout based upon where they had been. Previously at 800 million pounds of carryout, the industry has experienced record low prices due to these global ending stocks and likewise other areas trending down, we could see higher exports coming for almond growers. At the end of 2022, their marketing season had about a total of 992 million pounds of unsold almonds. After experiencing a decade of stable ending stocks, that was the peak. 2023 went back into the correct direction as far as building prices back up, dropping below 700 million. But there could be better days ahead. The positive outlook for the U.S. exports showing already in the first half of the marketing year are up 12% year over year. According to the Almond Board of California, bright spots in these shipments, Delaney, have gone to Asian Pacific markets up 19% and European exports up 8%. Having been out there at the World Ag Expo and talking to some of these producers, this is a welcomed foresight. The shipments of almond handlers for the first half of the marketing year did exceed 1.38 billion pounds, or more than 50% of the expected crop from last season. So now growers this year could be looking at a positive opportunity for ROI in the green. So we'll continue to keep an eye on here what this opportunity looks like for almond growers, but it sounds like it could be some good news. It does sound like that. You're our new resident expert when it comes to all things Californian agriculture, I'm, I'm thinking, Tanner. It's fresh in the mind. We'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I want to continue here with some news related to the carbon industry as the fate of several county ordinances that could restrict the placement of carbon dioxide pipelines in Iowa might hinge on the federal court appeals of two lawsuits. 
last year, two years ago, actually at this point, lawsuits were filed in November of 2022 against Shelby and Story counties here in the state of Iowa, which were the first of five counties sued by Summit Carbon Solutions over their county ordinances that would require the pipelines to be located within minimum distances from houses, schools, and medical facilities. Those lawsuits filed by Summit in November of 2022 were later decided in December of 2023 by a federal judge that county restrictions are overruled by the authority of state and federal regulators and as such cannot be enforced. Since then, however, we've seen early, we've seen continued lawsuits filed against three additional counties that have passed their own similar ordinances and are waiting to see what comes down from the higher courts, Tanner. Uh, the other counties are Emmett, Kisuth, and Palo Alto, and all three of those lawsuits will likely be paused until the appeals are decided according to court records. We also saw that in a rural Nebraska county, they delivered a blow to the pipeline as well. On a 3-0 to zero vote, the Stanton County Board in Nebraska denied a conditional use permit for the Summit Carbon Solution Pipeline. And we also have seen that similar counties, including Dakota County Planning and Zoning Commission, may also make similar decisions. They were supposed to meet earlier this year, but have tabled their decision until April and have said to Summit that they need to see more information about how this will impact the public and public health. So they are certainly running into continued headwinds here, Tanner, and the lawsuits probably don't make very favorable people uh, on their team, unfortunately. That's not good PR, I would say, for the pipeline project. That's correct. Well, for the last headline that I have today comes out of Bayer. They are rolling out a new business model that'll have a magnitude of changes. Uh, six months after Bill Anderson became the chairman of their board and CEO, he is looking at shaking up the structure. He aims to bring business closer to the customers that utilize all their products across all divisions. He's calling this a fundamental redesign of the company and reimagining how a multinational company can operate. His initial observation is there was nearly 10 layers between the consumer and direct management. That is not a theoretical management philosophy. It is a major overhaul as to how the company operates. To the question of when these changes are coming, the new operating model is already being deployed across various divisions. For the crop science business in the U.S., the first teams are piloting this in Wisconsin and Illinois with a complete rollout to happen towards the end of the year. We're going to focus on small, nimble micro-businesses focused on the way of creating and working closer with our customers. The crop science division will work with dealers and farmers a lot of the same ways they had in the past. The day-to-day -day details shouldn't change significantly, but they are looking at finalizing the way decisions get made above the initial hand-to-hand -hand combat. That's my terminology, not the, that of Bill's. They feel that the organization should be designed around what the farm goals are, and as commodity prices continue to get tighter, this is a focus that Bayer has put into their plan, Delaney. Well, then I think I am out of news for today. Aside from taking a look at the markets, what about you? Let's check the markets. Well, as we take a look here at the overnights, heading into the opening session here, markets are trying to push into 
into the green. March corn here this morning at the open up three and a quarter cent at 414 and a half. March soybeans down a quarter of a cent at 1160, flirting with neutral here. And as we take a look at the wheat complex, they are pushing extremely higher here at the open. Chicago March wheat contract up 16 pennies on the board at 5.99 and a quarter. March hard red winter wheat up 15 and a half cents at 5.92 and three quarters. And March spring wheat up nine and a quarter cent at 6.68 and a half. As we take a look at the livestock here at the open, April live cattle are up 77 and a half cents on the board at a buck 88.47 and a half. March feeder cattle up 217 at 253.52. And April lean hogs up 42 and a half cents on the board at 86.40. Tanner, we have been teasing this interview for a few days now, but we are going to be chatting today with German farmer Jana Gobert to talk about some of the recent farmer protests that have been breaking out across Europe. So let's turn it over to that conversation. Well, I'm very excited for today's conversation because, as we know, there have been protests breaking out across much of Europe. We're chatting today with German farmer Jana Gabert, who is a farmer in Germany and was part of some of these protests that have been happening in Germany specifically. Jana, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So, Jana, for those of our listeners unfamiliar with some of the issues going on right now in Germany and across much of Europe, give us the 10,000-foot overview of what's currently happening today. Okay, well, um, it started in December last year that the government in uh, Germany uh, decided uh, to uh, increase the taxes. Um, not just for the diesel, but also for all uh, machines we have to use on a farm, like tractors or combines. And uh, uh, all in all, it was uh, 1 billion euros for the farmers uh, th that they have to uh, pay more than usual. And uh, this was uh, up on a uh, on all the other restriction and uh, lower subsidies <laughs> that we uh, get at the moment. And so the farmers started to, uh, to protest in Germany. Um, you have to know that in Germany, the farmers are extremely capable of suffering. And um, after accepting many thousands of cuts uh, <laughs> with only a slight complaint, so it was like an uh, explosion. And so the uh, farmers started to uh, um, go on the streets and uh, drive with uh, tractors uh, to Berlin or to other uh, cities um, all in Germany. And so um, uh, we wanted to be, be uh, heard by the, the government because it was uh, uh, to have uh, too much for us. And um, so it started in December and it became uh, a bigger thing in Germany and also in Europe, because even if we are um, uh, different countries, we all are uh, part of the Europe uh, uh, agriculture policy. And uh, so it was like a wildfire <laughs> from country to country. And now in Germany, it is like uh, calm down. Uh, because uh, the government decided to uh, 
changed the decision they did in December, and uh, now we are in a mode of discussion. So for our listeners and for myself that don't know how policy makes its way in Germany, is it a body of elected officials that write these policies? Is it appointed officials? How does something like that get into place to begin with? Um, the agriculture politic is uh, made by two parts. The one big part is uh, the European Union and one part is uh, the government. The German government is elected for four years and um, so the, they made the policy um, they, uh, the politician stands for. And we had a change um, uh, two years ago from uh, a more conservative uh, politic to a more to more greener uh, and uh, more social uh, politics. But the the main problem is in Germany that the the politics uh, from the last uh, 10, 20, 30 years um, developed in uh, in a very uncomfortable way because we get more and more restrictions and we get more uh, bureaucracy it, it's not easy to um, solve the problems and to uh, reach the aims they wanted us to reach and so we have two um, types of measures they wanted us to to do on our farms we only can um, talk with the, with, the, with the government in in Germany it is not, but it's uh, difficult to reach the the European uh, politicians we have two big uh, partners we have to deal with. So, Jana, as you were thinking about, you know, all of this new policy that was coming forward with taxes, as you mentioned there, what made you decide to go to Brandenburg and be part of the farmer protests that we've seen so much in the news? Um, when we heard about uh, the decision, it was uh, like, okay, um, what does it mean for our farm? And um, so we uh, calculated uh, that uh, what does what it mean with higher taxes, uh, with uh, with all of our machines, and we thought about the consequences for our farm. And so um, we noticed that if the taxes uh, um, would come, we have to decide if we. Um, if we reduce uh, the number of our employees, and that would mean that the other have to work more, or um, we cut some ecological strategies uh, that we do on our farm. So we are um, a more extensive farm. We do a lot of uh, measures for increasing biodiversity that are not subsidized by the government. And we uh, work together with uh, a lot of partners from research institutes of um, university. And, and so we do a lot of research on our farm uh, for getting data. So we do a lot of work that uh, we are not paid for. And uh, so um, that would mean that we have to reduce this part. And it was like uh, for us, it was no way we we want to have the data we want to develop the agriculture the modern agriculture in in germany 
and uh, we want to have data that we can uh, show that yes we use pesticides and we uh, also increase biodiversity that's not a uh, two sides of a, a coin <laughs> so it, it worked together and um, so we wish to be heard uh, with our work and our data so that the decisions uh, are based on facts and not of emotions. So as these protests were happening, what did that do to the agricultural community? Were all farmers involved in the protest or did some have to stay home and manage the operations? We ask on our farm, um, so who wants to... Uh, uh, support the protests and come with us to uh, Berlin and who uh, want uh, to stay at, at the farm. So we, for, for sure, we have uh, the cows, they have to be fed, they have to be milked. And so we were two, two groups <laughs> and, um, and uh, we changed. So um, the first day I stayed on the farm then and on another day I went to Berlin and um so lots of farms here um uh sent uh some far farmers some employees and so at, even there um we were ten thousand farmers uh in Berlin uh and uh the others uh, worked so uh, it was amazing to see how many um people work uh in agriculture in Germany. So Jana, with uh, during the protests, did you talk to any other farmers or have you talked to other German farmers since about the protests that are going on, but also the policy? And what is everyone else feeling? Um, one farmer is not the same like a second farmer, <laughs> especially maybe in Germany. So you have a, a very big farm in the former East Germany and you have very, very small farms, for example, in the south of Germany. We often um, have discussions and different opinions. So it was very impressive to see um, that uh, the last uh, decisions in, in December uh, had a big impact on every farmer in Germany. And so nearly for the first time, uh, all farmers uh, stand uh, side by side and uh, decided to do something um, because the fear of losing uh, the farms uh, was uh, very, very uh, big. Nevertheless, there were uh, different uh, levels of uh, protest. I want to have the democratic way with with protest, with uh, with signs, show uh, that it is not the right way. But I uh, want to talk and want to discuss with the different political parties. Um, other farmers are more in an escalating way. So there were some rages and they were very, very angry and they they don't want to talk to any politicians anymore. So they ha you have the ones uh, on the one side, people who want to discuss and you have to, on the other side, want, uh, people who want to fight. And so, but uh, the majority of the farmers are very, very disciplinated and very, uh, friendly and they want to talk and they uh, just want to find uh, a solution together. So as you're talking to a majority of a U.S.-based audience, what message do you have for U.S. farmers before we wrap up? 
First, I want to say uh, thank you uh, for listening to me. Uh, I talked to some farmers in the last uh, weeks and months all over the world, and uh, it's very good to know that um, there is a global interest in the things that happen here. I want to say thank you for the support. Um, uh, we have a development, in, in a global development, with, and we I think we have some challenges on every continent so it's uh, we are have the same problems and challenges and sometimes we have others for me it is very important to stay in contact and to talk about this because it's not easy to get all information uh, just from the press Awesome. Well, Jana, thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly appreciate your time and appreciate you sharing with us what has been going on in Germany. Yes, thank you. Well, there you go, listeners. If you have to listen to that a second time to get through the accent, it is well worth the conversation. We appreciate her taking the time and you as well, listeners, for hanging out with us today. Absolutely, Tanner. But we have one more episode in the week this week, and then we'll be headed to Commodity Classic. So listeners do stay tuned with us or find us next week. If you're going to be at commodity classic, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ag news daily. But Tanner with that, should we let the folks go? Let's let them go.